<laughs> I can direct videos, man. I can direct videos, it's no problem. <laughs> pout, baby, pout, pout. Come on, baby, give me all you got. I'm Jim Yukich, and this is my 80s-ography. Hello, this is Ages Orgraphy, and I'm really excited about this interview. The previous season was about interviewing music producers, and I've got a few of them to come in this season as well, but I thought I'd, I'd broaden the scope of the podcast, spread the net a bit wider, and thought a good area to, to tap into is the music video, which was such a big part of the 80s, and speaking to music video directors. It's a great book that I want my MTV brilliantly entertaining book written by Rob Tannenbaum and Craig Marks highly recommend it some great stories in there and it made me think of all those great music video directors of the 80s and one that I thought of was Jim Yukich the name I remember from the 80s and all those great Phil Collins and Genesis videos so I did a couple of interviews with Jim really interesting and entertaining he's a great guy and also as part of it we did some audio commentaries and when we get to that point there are three in this episode and four in the next so you just need to queue up the video on file any file on not me cylinder it's the one we both used got the um urls the urls in the description for the episode but you, you'll be able to find them easily enough and uh, one of the kids will be there to, to count you in three two one go so just i guess that bit pause get the video up and then play it's really really good they, they work really well uh anyways, loads to enjoy here so um here's part one of the interview with music video director of the 80s jim yukic Part one of the interview begins now. 1980, 1981, 1982. Is it true you started at the mailroom at Capitol Records? Yes, I that did. Sounds like a cliche, but actually came true. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 it was kind of a a weird period. I was looking for something in the music business. I didn't know for sure about you know like the television business or film business or what I was going to go into. I have a degree in film radio, uh, film and television with a minor in music. And so I came out to California, looked around for jobs, and it was during a, a strike, a writer's strike in the film industry. So there was hardly anything going on. So I think I thought, okay, well, I'll go to music end. And I basically submitted resumes to all the record companies. And Capital EMI had an opening in a mailroom 
And my cousin who I was living with said, take the job because they have satin jackets that say capital on the back. You can only get them if you work there. And he said, get in and do it for about a week or so and get us some jackets. And that's the only reason I took the job. How long were you there for? I Well, I was at Capitol for about five years. I was in the mailroom only about three months. I started, yeah, I, I did the mailroom and I started doing my runs and I found out that there was a, you know, there's a recording studio in the basement of Capitol where Beach Boys and Sinatra and everybody used to record. And I talked to the head of the recording department and said, hey, I look, I, I want to get into this. And he said, well, you know, let me see your background and your resume. I look, I showed it to him. And he said, uh, you should really talk to Varley Smith, a guy up in, on the 11th floor. It's the video department. I didn't even know it existed. And I used to bring him his mail all the time. And it, it was like a weird deal where he was always in an office that was closed. And there was no video equipment visible or anything. It was just, a, you know, like boxes and doors. And so when I went up there and talked to him, Varley was in the middle of trying to tape something. And Varley's not a technical guy. And there, one of our artists, a, a woman named Ann Murray, uh, was on the Tonight Show that night, and he had to set a timer because these they'd always record the artists on the air so that the marketing meeting they could look at him and and say, oh look at that, she looks great. So I showed him how to set the timer because I knew how to do that, and that was a lot of the reason. He said, well, we got to get you up here because he he had no idea how to even record stuff. So I kind of got up there really quick in three months, and then. I was, that was like in the, in 1980. And I didn't, I actually did my first video in December of 82. I had a background in editing. So I edited all their commercials for Capitol and things. Which I set up an edit room for them and a duplicating facility for them up there on the 11th floor. But then I actually did the first video of a band called Red Rider, which is a Canadian band. I did that in 80, December of 82. And I was basically just going to go with a camera crew and shoot some stuff. And I shot it. 1983. I knew a lot about editing because I did all the commercials and I knew how to do like weird, the new hip post things with, you know, ADOs where things are flipping and 3D and all that kind of stuff. So I did a, a kind of a, a high tech kind of looking for the, for the period uh, job on the video, showed it to everybody. Everybody loved it. Two days later, I was in the studio with Sheena Easton and Kenny Rogers shooting a video with them. And I had no idea how to do these things. So what I did was I just hired the best people. I hired people that I knew did these things all the time and like a cinematographer and, you know, lighting guys, uh, sound people. And it kind of evolved. So I did that night there being called America. And then the guy who really liked me up there said, Hey, David Bowie wants to actually do a video on his own for a song called modern love. And we're kind of worried because if he's going to direct it, usually David Mallet used to direct all the Bowie stuff. And he says, but David, but Bowie wanted to do it himself. And so they sent me to kind of like make sure the money was well spent and to kind of oversee it. So I went to Philadelphia. I saw one show, met with David after the show, and he gave me a, like a little sheet of paper. He said, these are the six or seven frames that I kind of see that I want in this thing. And it, one was like, you know, him coming out through the, the big spiraling uh, curtain things. And, and one was the balloon drop with him playing a saxophone. And I still have that sheet, which is really neat that he drew himself, you know, that Anyhow, so I met with him. He said, could you kind of figure out a shot list and things? So I, I went home that night and I put together a complete shot list of what we needed to do. Met with him the next day, showed him the shot list, said, great, let's do it. So we, we went on stage, started shooting, and I, I was telling everybody, okay, here we do it. And, I, and I'm kind of directing and I don't really know because David just sitting there with a cup of coffee, like drinking like, the whole time. And, I'm, and the, after like about the third or fourth take, 
he came over to the to the guy that was doing a slate, unbeknownst to me, and he had to change it from Bowie director to Yukich director, and it changed my life basically. You know, because now all of a sudden I directed David Bowie, and that kind of like propelled me and you know into the stratosphere. Because then, then I was doing every, I mean, I was doing Iron Maiden, and that's because I had Iron Maiden and Bowie and all these other people. I could meet with Tony Smith at, when I went to London. And the first time I met with Tony Smith at Hit and Run offices, which is Genesis Management and Peter Gabriel's management. And Tony thought I'd be better with Peter Gabriel than with Genesis. So he sent me on the road with Peter. And I spent months with Peter talking about a live, you know, like a conceptual live show and all, all those elements that he had. And I still have, I actually still have a notebook of that as well, all the notes. And it was all, it was from the album uh, with uh, not Sledgehammer, before Sledgehammer. I, I'm security not really sure one. Yeah. Security, yes, yeah. security. Yeah. And so I have a note, I have notes for every song, like what he was thinking and what he saw conceptually that he wanted in the video. And he was a pr- procrastinator and-, and That doesn't he, sound like Peter Gabriel. Yeah, he, he <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. No, like, like Tony, Tony warned me, he said, you know, he doesn't do albums like, Every he does albums like every ten years because he he does like two hundred versions of each song because he can't decide which it's one. Nineteen is. years since his last album. I've interviewed right. several people that work with him, and I said, "Can you just give him a nudge?" I know you 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 interviewed Hugh, so so they warned me that, and so I traveled with him, and he was like an incredible person. Peter was unbelievably so friendly, and to the point that when I had a I actually had to leave because I had a. a Iron Maiden video that I had to go to. I was in Vienna with Peter and I had to go to England and Peter drove me to the airport and he carried <laughs> my luggage and I was like embarrassed. And I kept saying, you know, Peter, you don't have to carry my, no, no, that's no, fine. And I mean, just the nicest guy. And, and it's interesting, the dynamic, because he's nice. He's very shy. He's nice. And it's, it's weird to be him being shy with the costumes and everything that, mm-hmm. you know, that he's known for. The only guy that's almost as shy as him is Tony Banks. The two, the two of them in a band, must have been weird because if you had a conversation with Tony Banks in a room or at a party or wherever you were, and you were talking to him face to face, by the end of the conversation, his back would be against the opposite wall because he's he's like shy and he kind of he shuffles kind of backwards as he's talking. It was it, so with him with Peter, I can't even imagine how they got anything done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> although they they were mates and they were they were competitive. You know, starting with tennis, you know, and piano and everything else, but. Um, it was an interesting group. And, and that whole Genesis family was like a family. I mean, that they, they kept people, good or bad, uh, you know, people around for years. Once they got to know you and they know that you weren't going to like blow their cover in any way, like write an expose or do mm-hmm. anything. Not that there was much say anyway, but <laughs> they, knew, yeah. they knew that you were part of the family. Once you were part of the family. To establish trust. Yeah. 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 So it was it was a great time for me. It obviously progressed really quickly then. And the first video did in December 82. How many months was it before you got the David Bowie uh, uh, video? The, well, the, the one I did in 82 in December, it aired in January of 83. And I did Peter in June of 83. So like six months later. In between that, I did, uh, like, like I said, the Kenny Rogers, Sheena East. And I, I went to Bahamas and did a couple Iron Maiden videos. There's a band called Burning Sensation. I did Kim Carnes, who had a hit. Betty Davis eyes you're in yep, the 80s yeah. that Russell and um, so I, I did quite a bit of little small time videos before Bowie it just took off like crazy I mean I was doing a video every 10 days you know it was ridiculous 
because when you once you said you've directed Bowie, everybody yeah, wanted to work with you. Yeah, it's just like a, yeah, 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 which was great. I mean, he, I mean, that's how I got out. Tony Smith put me with Peter Gabriel because he figured this guy is a Bowie's guy, and it was more of like a live show with Peter. But then once I started working with Genesis, Peter was still friendly. We always saw each other after that, but it was like you're their guy. Okay, so there's never any opportunity in the future then to work with Peter because he sees you as the Genesis Phil Collins guy. Yeah, so yeah, he, he, yeah, he didn't want to combine the creative at all, which is kind of interesting. I, in, a, in a sense, I was very sad, but but what I got out of it was like 25 videos for Phil, 27 videos for Genesis, 10 videos for Mike and Mechanics, you know, so it was and the concerts and specials. So yeah. I, I got a lot more out of them than I would out of Peter. Yeah. But creatively, Peter was, you know, like a genius. But if you could have directed one of his songs, which one would you have picked? Peter's? Yeah. Boy, that's a, that, that's kind of a good question. I, it would have probably had to be a hit because they wouldn't have probably done necessarily, you know, Sledgehammer would have been great. But um, In Your Eyes, I always liked. Yeah. Did you have a concept? Did you, when you heard these albums and these songs, did you have a concept like, oh, this is what I do with this video? If he'd let me do one. Well, sometimes, yeah, sometimes I did. I mean, he he was tough because he was he was like better than me in a sense. You know, I mean, if I came up with an idea, I'd almost be uh, embarrassed to tell him because I <laughs> he's probably he was probably like three steps past that. I mean, one of the ideas that we did have that I came up with that he liked a lot was kind of a weird green screen thing before there was green screen we thought in the concert in one point that we would flood the auditorium with water just visually not real water obviously yeah, but yeah. we would we would shoot it in such a way that we could make it look like the people were standing in like four feet of water and we met with people and it could have been done but it would but it cost a lot of money but um that was one of the very few ideas that i actually pitched him because he thought he might like that one yeah, yeah. That, that he liked so your second video was kenny rogers yeah. How old would you have been when that was made? Oh, geez, that was 83. I was um, 30. 30. So you're a 30 year old who's made one video previously and you're handling a big star like Kenny Rogers. Does yeah. he does he have your trust? Does he know from his point of view that you're as experienced to him because he doesn't know anything about music videos? He had no You're idea. the guy or do, or do you have to prove yourself to somebody that established that's that, that bigger star? Well, because everyone liked the Red Rider video, his label, he was on EMI America. I would, you know, I did, they had two labels there, EMI America and Capital. He was on EMI America. And Jim Mazza, who was the president of EMI America, liked the video that I did. So he thought it'd be real easy to get the song. That was a song called uh, We've Got Tonight. It was Bob oh, Seeger's song, actually. And so when I met Kenny, I think he thought that I was already a guy in the business, kind of, you know. And mm -hmm. I, I kind of did my best to kind of act like that, if, if you could. I mean, I, like I said, I brought all kinds of, like, the best art director. I used all the Russell Mulcahy's people because I was such a huge Russell Mulcahy fan. Everything he did to me was brilliant. And so I got his art director, got his cinematographer, got his, you know, ev everything. And Kenny was great. Kenny was sicker than a dog that day. He was coughing. He had uh, stomach problems. He was in the bathroom half the time. <laughs> and he didn't complain a bit. And yet Sheena Easton, who was this, you know, the youngs, all she did was complain. She yeah. came in, she didn't like, she didn't like this, she didn't like that, she didn't like this. And I just thought it was, you know, ironic that here this big star is so professional and she's being such a jerk about it, you know. It's never the A-listers and the troublemakers, <laughs> it's always the C and D-listers, isn't it? It's always the ones that one step, but yeah, got idea yeah. of the station. Okay, so Genesis, 
that's all yes. the first video you did with them. How clued up were you with their music at that point? I yeah. played in bands in, back in Chicago where I grew up. I played, although I don't look like it now, I had long hair and I played in bands. And we played Genesis stuff. Well, we were a progressive band. So we played Watcher in the Skies. We played, you know, like the early Genesis, Fifth uh, Fifth to Firth, uh, Firth to Fifth. Or whatever. You know, we played like all those, those like the Selling England songs and and Foxtrot songs, besides doing Yes and King Crimson and all that stuff. Um, so I knew them really well, and I was really excited. And, and Tony said, well, Peter's not gonna do anything right now, but I'm gonna send you some songs from Genesis. And he sent me five songs, which were Mama, Illegal Alien, um, That's All, Home by the Sea, and Second Home by the Sea. He sent me a cassette of those. And I listened to them, and I loved Mama, and I loved Home by the Sea and Second Home by the Sea. Wasn't crazy about That's All or Illegal Alien. And they already <laughs> did the video for Mama and Illegal Aliens because when I got on the phone with Tony, I said, well, uh, I like okay. Mama. Mama. And he goes, well, we've already done it for Mama. And I thought, oh, great. And so... What, goes, what, you think do you, sorry, what would you think you would have done with Mama? Well, probably similar to That's All in a sense, you know, probably, but with a little bit more uh, surreal images or something, you know, something, some other storyline going on. What a great song that was. I thought that uh, it was, I think Stuart Orm directed that. I, it was a great look that, that, you know, that Mexican, that was all one set. They shot both of those videos in, in one set, Illegal Alien and and, and it was an, like in Shepperton or some studio. I thought it was great. I mean, it was like just basically a performance video with the girl thing. They hated the girl thing. They, they absolutely, the band actually absolutely hated and I think that's a lot of the reason why they move on from Stewart is because he had this video chick. And, and what did they object to specifically? Just that there was a girl in it. They didn't. Yeah, I, it was weird because I just got the, I never got the real story. But I, it was, you know, he had done a lot of their videos before that. And then and Bruce Gowers did some before that even. But they didn't like the video chick at all. And Mike Rutherford specifically said when we did that's all. No video chicks, you know. <laughs> okay. So, so it kind of made sense that to to kind of like jump a couple of years ahead into the early '90s. After you know, Mike's whole thing was we don't like video chicks, blah blah blah. That was the first conversation I ever had with them. We did a song called "Jesus He Knows Me" from uh, <laughs> I Can't Dance, and in the bridge, there's the three religious guys, you know, the 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 sermon and the pastors, and the three of the guys in the band. And they're surrounded by bikini girls at the pool and everything. And Mike's on a massage table and the girls are rubbing him. <laughs> and during one of the breaks, Mike called me over and he goes, Jim, remember the conversation we had about video chicks? And I said, yeah. He goes, forget that. This is working out, <laughs> this, this is working out okay. <laughs> and years too late. Oh, there yeah. is he must have had, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, I got kind of, I kind of felt like I got stuck with that song. And it was really a tough dilemma because I, in my mind, had this whole Russell Mulcahy surrealistic kind of thing for Genesis. What a, you know, and, and all of a sudden I get, that's all. And it's this jaunty pop song. Yeah. Pop star yeah. song. So went down to Dallas, walked into the studio where they were shooting or where they were re rehearsing for the tour. And as I walked in, they had just started and it was, they were doing Dodo, with a, you know, like 300 Vera lights, all blue going crazy. And the road manager said, just sit on a case in the front of this on the floor. So here I am, a huge Genesis fan. First time I ever meet them. And I'm sitting like 20 feet from the stage by myself on a road case watching the set. The yeah, first private set, show. Yeah. In a private show. So they, they do like two songs. And Phil jumps down, runs up to me, and he goes, you must be Jim. And I said, yeah. And he goes, um, 
we're, we're going to do the rest of the set and then we'll talk. We'll go out to eat after. We're just going to do the first half of the show. And I said, no, that's fine. And then he turned around and he stopped and he goes, I'm Phil. And it's like, <laughs> are, you, are, you fuck, are you fucking kidding? Of course I know you're Phil. And, and then that was a funny adventure as well. Because we went to that night, we went to talk about the video for That's All. We went to a place called The GAC, which is a Green Avenue Country Club. It's in Dallas. And so we went out to eat. Mike and Tony and Phil and I went to eat and Phil drove. And we drove through some cornfields and Phil was always on the wrong side of the road. And we're having this conversation in the car and the whole time, Tony Banks is sitting there and he's going, uh, right side, Phil, it's America, it's America, right side, Phil. And so it was <laughs> kind of a, a, like almost like a sitcom. Yeah. And, and we discussed, we, stu- we discussed the video and halfway through or when we're done, almost Robert Plant comes in and he sits down. He was rehearsing for his solo tour in the st- next stage in Las Colinas that they were. So and they, they had it hooked up a couple of times and, and he told them they would meet. I didn't know that. So now I'm sitting with the three of them and Robert Plant. And I'm thinking, okay, I just, I was like playing in a band in my basement like a year ago in Chicago. <laughs> and, and, and here I am with these, here I'm with these guys, you know? And so then it was funny because then when we left, we walked out together and there was a huge club across the street and it had a big picture window and it used to be like a grocery store or something. And the band was on the stage with their backs to the window playing and it was the lights, you know, you could see that it was a night. So you could see the band with the lights and they're rocking out. So they go, um, Hey, there's a band playing. Let's go check it out. So we all walk up to the window and we're watching the band from behind after about 20 seconds, everybody in the crowd <laughs> that was watching the band was looking out the window saying that's Phil Collins and Robert plant and Tony that's Genesis and, and Robert. And they were going crazy. And the band is thinking they're kicking ass. Because everybody in the crowd is going nuts. And so obviously we hopped in the car and got out before anybody came out of the building, but that was kind of a, that's all. And then the video itself for that's all, all they wanted to do is do a performance and be in funny, funny clothes. They love doing videos with funny clothes and funny coats. And little did I know then, but I knew afterwards, is that Phil always liked to keep the funny clothes. So you couldn't really go to like a, there's places called like Western Costume out here where you they rent clothes for movies and things. You couldn't do that because Phil was going to take it or he wanted it. So we got them in funny clothes. And that was another Mike Rutherford thing. Mike pulled me aside and goes, just put us in funny clothes and we'll be fine. And we found a warehouse, which was an old book you know like a school book warehouse shot the video and another funny thing during the video was uh daniel pearl shot the video who was a cinematographer who who you really should interview at some point as well because daniel pearl i mean you could interview me and you could interview russell and godly cream and all the all the 80 directors but daniel shot all the videos it's it would be like interviewing like all the video directors at once because i mean here's a guy who shot every breath you take and and wrapped around my finger and you know you name it he did it you know it was it was almost ridiculous what was funny is we're doing that's all and daniel's putting lights down and he put like this car can on the ground with a, a orange gel just to kind of light up to get the building more of like a sepia tone kind of thing and phil was like watching him and Phil, he, he goes to Phil, he goes, hey, Phil, I'll check it. He goes, ha, 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 and he does the, the mama thing, right? Oh, yeah. And so, so, so we started laughing. <laughs> and then Phil goes, you know, and he, to Daniel and I, he goes, you know, you know Daniel, um, when we shoot this, I, I'd like it to be really grainy, really like, you know, gritty and grainy. And Daniel being a guy who's a cinematographer at the time, 
who wanted to move up in the world in commercials and everything, the last thing you could you that they want is for a film to look grainy and shitty. They, uh, they want it to look yeah. like beautiful. You know? Yeah. So so Phil goes. So can we make this like really grainy? And and Daniel goes, yeah. And we're going to add a little hiss to the audio as well. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Phil goes. Phil goes. Point point taken. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. The thing about that Saul is that Mike Rutherford is the most erudite tramp ever, isn't he? He just doesn't he does he doesn't pull off the tramp look at all. He just looks so well well turned out. Oh yeah, I know. He, he but he's the, he was he actually he still is the easiest one to communicate with, to talk to, returns calls. I mean, Phil, you could email Phil and call until you're blue in the face and then he'll call you. Because he's really busy, Always but especially did. now with his with his health and everything. You know, it's just tough to get a hold of. And, I, and I've, everybody says the same thing. I mean, when I talk to Daryl Sturmer or, or Leland Sklar or anybody, it feels really hard to get a hold of. When was the last time you spoke to him? I haven't spoke to him probably in 10 years. Right. I'm thinking of going to one of the shows, but not if it's going to be a COVID thing where you can't go backstage. Yeah. You know, because it's, it's not worth it. Because the last thing I want to do is see Phil just sitting and singing because yeah. it's kind of sad to me because yeah. it's like the soundtrack of my life almost. I would have preferred if I was him and I, I'd, I'd hate to tell them what to do because they seem to know what to do because they're doing pretty well. But I think it would have been better to put him behind a piano on the, in the, in the center of the stage. Just get a grand piano and have him sit there like an Elton John kind of thing. It would have looked a little less disarming, you know, to, to see him sitting at the piano and playing the piano during the songs. Yeah. Even though he doesn't play the piano on some of these songs, it would just look, it'd be a better look, I think. Yeah, I mean, I would, I've never seen Genesis live, and I would love to have seen them, but this—it's not really how I would have wanted to see them. If that makes sense. No, yeah, no. I, I mean, I've seen the videos now, and it's just—it is kind of a shame because I feel so bad that you know everything's gone bad for him. You know, I mean, with the, the surgeries are all bad. He had to tape his hands on the drumsticks for that Motown album that he did, and yeah. it was—it's pretty bad. But Mike, Mike's son works for some tech company out here in LA, so Mike kind of comes through LA every once in a while. And when he has come through, he calls me and sees, sees if I'm around for dinner or to chat or something. I just noticed that your background is a lot more impressive than mine. I'm kind of, I'm kind of embarrassed by my background compared to yours. Oh, I haven't oh. got any gold. <laughs> How many gold and platinum discs do you own? I don't know. You and your company. <laughs> no, I don't know. There's probably like, I mean, here there's like probably 25 or 30, but there's, I have a lot that are like in storage and things and that I've given away. And my, there- I, my, my parents and stuff, just giving them. Is there a video equivalent to like you, you get like certifications for airplay for songs? Is there a video equivalent for that where you get for no. views on no. MTV you'd get or YouTube? Okay, yeah. No, no, it's, it's really not. And um, what's kind of interesting is I had a sheet that showed airplay. There used to be a, a video magazine or not a va- magazine, but like a, a, a weekly flyer. And a bunch of weeks I had the most playing or a second of most playing, you know, videos on MTV and things. And it was always funny because I look at it now and it's kind of, it's almost painful, but because you look at it now and below me is like David Fincher, you know? And, and it's like, it's like, are you, are you, are you kidding? How come, how come, how come I didn't do that? <laughs> it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you're ahead of David oh, Fincher. On yeah, I know. David Fincher. Then again, yeah. it all, yeah. So all because you set a timer, you got this career because you can set a timer effectively. Yeah. Yeah. 1984. Did you see this is Spinal Tap when it came out? And did, yes, it, did. did it affect your approach to Iron Maiden videos? You did some in 83 and you did some 
post Spinal Tap? Did it, was there like, a, can we do well, it? It did. It, it, I mean, I loved Spinal Tap. I mean, I remember, I, I remember even seeing the trailer, which was a weird, did you ever see the trailer? It was um, mm-hmm. Rob Reiner, the director sitting in a, like a edit room and he's talking and, oh, and yes, all he yes. showed was the cheese roll. It was like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hi, I'm Rob Reiner. I've just directed my first feature film for Embassy Pictures. It's called Spinal Tap. It's a comedy about a British rock and roll band. I'd love to show you a clip, but as you can see, we're still editing here. I know I should show you something, uh, and I found this piece of film lying around the editing room. It's not from my picture, but I think you'll find it interesting and quite informative. The spine, yeah, Spinal Tap was great, but it didn't really affect the Iron Maiden stuff. I, I always looked at videos is kind of like um a time to have fun you know and i know like russell and those guys and you know they're very serious got Elite cream uh, well guy can be a little bit more fun than russell but russell's a funny guy but he's very serious you know in his imagery and everything and a lot of that was keith williams did you, ever inter- did you interview keith williams yet no another guy keith williams who is a conceptualist i'm still facebook friends with him as well and I'm sh- I'm sure he. I don't know if he was here back there now, but he lived here at the time. He was like the Bernie Taupin, you know. I mean, he'd say, "Here's the song. Come up with an idea, Keith," and Keith would come up with the ideas. Even for for Russell, like Duran Duran and stuff like that, you know. So it was he interesting guy to talk to, probably. But the Iron Maiden stuff, I had known them because they were on Capitol, and I knew Rod Smallwood, the management, and he knew what I was doing, you know, like, with the other stuff. And he always liked me because. I knew I was a musician, so I knew what they were doing. I knew how to play a lot of their stuff and went down to Bahamas, shot the video with them, had fun because it was Nico's first uh, album with them, the drummer. And they, the other guys didn't really want to do anything, but they, they said, let Nico do it. So we, Nico got stuck doing all the weird conceptual stuff. But they're incredible people, again, not what you expect. You know, you, I mean, look at Bruce now. He's like a pilot and he's done all this. But, you know, really neat people. Steve, Steve Harris's favorite bass player is Mike Rutherford. So right. it, it was kind of, yeah, yeah, you wouldn't expect that. And so so they were always a lot of fun to hang with and really more together than people would think. I mean, I remember when I shot them in Long Beach, I think Guns N' Roses were, were the opening act. And they used to call Guns N' Roses Needles and Noses. <laughs> so um so you did a video two minutes to midnight so when you're doing like a a a narrative video with a storyline right do you have to pitch that to the record company or the group because more than i'm going to film you make a cool video of you performing your song this is more than that yeah we well two minutes to midnight it was uh, a lot of live things and daniel pearl shot those in fact um but um that was in germany we shot those in germany they were rehearsing in uh somewhere in germany when we when we went there to shoot that stuff the, all i had a pitch was basically to steve steve harris rod i talked to rod and rod said come up with something blah, blah. and i would just talk to steve and say okay we're gonna do mostly live we might do a little bit of this or that and david mallet had done the videos with them before i did and he did like the ones that they run to the hills and the things with all the old military footage mm-hmm. and things and they kind they kind of like that image for some reason so two minutes to midnight was kind of like a extension of that. The reason, interestingly, why David Mallet stopped working with them, and I started working with them, was he was supposed to do a, either a video or a live thing for them, and he went to scout 
them at Hammersmith Odium, and he fell asleep during the show. <laughs> How is that I'm possible? Well, it's, it is kind of possible in a sense that with the schedule that we had, people don't realize how ridiculous, like you were talking before. And Daniel Pearl's even more because he would finish with me at four in the morning and be on the next set at eight in the morning for somebody else. But yeah, Mal would fall asleep and they figured if he can't stay awake, then we don't want him. Yeah, that's, that's fair enough. That's reasonable, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> response. I can't argue with that. But as yeah. a general point, um, in terms of pitching ideas, I mean, I mean, how often would you be going to a band saying, can I do a video? How often would the record company be coming to you? How, I, mean, I would, in terms of- I would, I would never reach out to try to, to get a video. They would call me. So you always, it was always assigned to you as a project, like will you do it? Yeah, it, they would, it, well, not that I would immediately have it, although it was easier in the early days, it would be like, they would maybe like, like, you know, spread it out to like two or three directors. And a lot of times the band would want one director and a record company would suggest somebody else. So they'd get like two treatments, what they called in, and they'd look at them, which was such bullshit because if you saw some of the treatments that I saw from other people, they would write like these treatments that they couldn't possibly do for the money, right. you know, you know, and and everything they do all the buzzwords like it's going to have an edge and it's <laughs> going to have this, you know, they all the current buzzwords were all in the treatment, mm. and it was just baloney. And I I used to say to myself, have they seen the other stuff that this person's done because it's not going to be what they think it's going to be, you know? And so I would kind of like be I'd be available, and luckily, you know, things just keep rolling on through management a lot of times like i said you get the same management tony smith with mike and mechanics phil and genesis <clears throat> uh rod smallwood had wasp and iron maiden uh you had i had all these managers that i was dealing with that had a couple of bands so i would if you got in with them and you did something good for one of their bands they'd call you for the next guy and the record company might suggest like i said somebody else but ultimately the band would make the decision you know who which way they wanted to go and then that's kind of how that kind of leads up actually to easy lover which was philip and phil bailey phil collins philip and phil bailey i had done the stuff with genesis and when i did the stuff with genesis when i did that, that's all phil said i'll be seeing you very soon i didn't know what that meant necessarily but it did mean actually you know the, like the live show that we did and all that the mama tour but the record company wanted jack I can't remember his name, last name, Jack Small or Jack, the guy who did Philip Bailey's last videos. And he, his producer was Paul Flattery. And the compromise was that Paul Flattery would produce and I would direct for Phil and Philip Bailey. And that was the first video I did with Paul. And Paul and I formed FYI, the company for the next five or six years. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and so it was a great kind of a great matchup because we worked really well together because I could listen to his ideas. He could listen to my ideas and it would be like, um, it's kind of a, I don't want to sound like I can, you know, like I'm stepping too, uh, too high, but it would be like a Lennon McCartney kind of thing. Paul and Joe and, and John, they kind of trusted each other to say when they, when they made a criticism or opinion, whereas they didn't listen to other people. When Paul and I worked together, it was kind of like that. We, if he said something, you know, I could really, I could really take it in. And even if he didn't if said something that I didn't like, it would spur maybe another idea or a compromise that would take us in the right direction. So, so it could be the real, one person that could say, that's a shit idea, Jim. Yeah. yeah. You go with it. Yeah. 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 Although if I really disagreed, I, I kind of like go in the back and say, okay, how can I make this better? So he won't think that, you know? Right. Yeah. And so I, I keep it, but maybe change it a little bit. 
But him being from Liverpool and me being from America, it was great because we both obviously like the Beatles. We will like the same music together. And he gave it kind of like, you know, the, the over here, there's a certain amount of English bullshit where they mm-hmm. people think that they're really, you know, creative geniuses. And it helped because, you know, he would be the front man and walk in and everybody thought we were like a professional classy operation. So it worked, <laughs> it worked well. So which one were you, Paul or John? <laughs> I was, I probably was Paul and he was John, I think. Or, well, maybe, yeah, well, it was kind of, it was good guy, bad guy. I don't know, but I was usually the good guy. He was a bad guy, but he worked for John Roseman. And you should interview Paul as well at some point if you can. But yeah, he right. worked for John Roseman for years. He And Paul was, was there when they did Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, he was, wow. yeah. It would, and then Paul became partners with Bruce Gowers and Simon Fields. So it was Gowers, Fields, and Flattery before he came in with me. So he's got a great history as well. I mean, doing videos, be, you know, many before I did. Okay. So as we're talking about Easy Lover, let's try the uh, commentary thing. Okay. So we're going to play Easy Lover. It's from YouTube. It's the 446 version. And we'll do a three, two, one countdown. Okay. So three, two, one, play. There's, there's a big part of the story that's interesting that, that probably won't go with the commentary you, you talk about it and then if there's anything okay. specific what you see you can point it out as we go so they're in a helicopter now right so the the helicopter bit is interesting because first of all phil bailey got very sick it was i mean he literally turned green because he was he got uh, but the interesting thing about that is that the original concept was that there was a look-alike a phil look-alike that was flying the helicopter and Philip Bailey thought that he was, it was, I don't know how it was, it was really stupid. And we ended up cutting the look like out of the whole video. The look like was in the video a number of times in the beginning and at the end. And so you he, hired a look alike and he got cut out. Yeah. And he was like oh, devastated because he, he had told all his, his, his friends that, that uh, there's Paul Flattery in their video. And I'm in, I think I'm in here. There I am. I'm standing there too. So we, we shot all this stuff with Philip first. Philip came in the studio, went through his stuff. And then Phil, when Phil walks in the door, basically that's the first time they've seen each other since they recorded the, the song. So it truly was. That's genuine. Uh, you know, yeah. yeah, genuine. And then we, you know, I, I decided that it would be kind of fun to do a bit where they were really singing, you know. And, and so we, we actually recorded them live singing it with it. So, and it was like, I think one of the, one of the first times that there's like dialogue and audio in a video, like it, they, they were like rehearsing the, you know, the song and we, we figured this guy, so we layered it on. It won some kind of not MTV, but some kind of billboard music awards for audio, which was kind of funny because <laughs> all we did was lay the audio on. Um, and it was, it was, um, this was done in a studio uh, by um, where the, I, I guess it's the where Pink Floyd had the the factory. But where's what that part of town is that? Remember the L- oh, the, the Battersea. Yeah, Battersea. And and when we shot this video at the same t- the same days that we shot this video, the next day we shot a video with Andy Summers in the same stage. So uh, so it was kind of uh, we you know we booked the whole thing and. One of my favorite bands of all time was also in the stage next door the whole time. And Frankie goes to Hollywood. They were doing a thing with um, with with Frost. I can't remember what it was. Or two. It was um, um, the Power of Love video, and with the 
sheep and their you know yes, the, the yeah. nativity nativity yeah. scene. So was, it was, was brilliant, brilliant for me. Yeah, yeah. I was I was a huge Frankie Goes to Hollywood fan, and because because of Trevor Horn, basically, mm-hmm. I loved the stuff they did. Go back to the video here. We we kind of combined film and video on this, which wasn't so easy back then because there you know you're talking about. 625 scan lines and shooting off the screen. And so everything was a little bit like, you know, tough. It took a while to do the post on that. The woman in the background laughing, one woman is, um, is Philip's wife. The other one is um, (laughs) Jamie Tarson. Jamie, I can't remember what her last name is, Jamie, but she passed away. She was Philip's manager that is laughing in the background. And then we did the whole thing with earth, wind and fire suit at first. That was funny because Philip had no idea that we did that. Her manager brought the suit. And when, when, Phil Collins held that up. It was uh, most of these were genuine moments, and it was a pretty easy video to shoot because we had, you know, I we made a shot list of okay, we're going to need to do all the video stuff first, so we can get on the screen in a control room, and you know, so like all all this stuff was shot last. We were just played back the video and and shot up in the control room, but um, I I mean I think that that um, it was kind of it was it was an easy song to do all you had to do was do a video that made sense because the song was so good that's that happens a lot a, a lot of times you'll get a song and the video has to make the song the hit and then there's a lot of times where the the song is a hit and you just can't screw it up you don't want to get and in the way of it yeah that's what that's what this is this is a version of doing a video that you don't screw up the song it's not really anything special the only thing special like i said we layered the audio a little bit at times that nobody's really had done up to that, that point. And we combined video and film, but it, it was, it was an exercise in get this across as it is and let people hear the song. Cause when I, I remember I got the cassette of the song. It was, there's very few songs <clears throat> that I knew were going to be hits when I first got them. This was one of them. When I put it on, I thought, Oh my gosh, this is a, this is it. The only other song that I got that I didn't do the video for, but I was working for the record company hiring people to do the video was I got a cassette before that years before that, a Betty Davis eyes by Kim Carnes. Mm. And I put that on and I thought this is a hit. So that's kind of, that's kind of the the main thing about the video business is that you have to do a video that kind of either helps or doesn't hurt. A good example of a video that helps is land of confusion. That song, I mean, it was an interesting song, but it's not a big hit song. And if you don't, if you think about it, it wasn't a huge hit song by itself but then you put a video that it's on seven times a day on MTV that really helps. So yeah. you said that there was nothing particularly special or different about it, but I remember as a kid watching this and them singing live and speaking on the video. I'd never seen that before. Yeah. It, it seemed groundbreaking watching it on top of the box. Yeah. We, we yeah. were afraid that we were afraid that people were going to get mad and not play like top of the pops and those people that they would yeah. get upset. Because it because wasn't the record, it was because it wasn't a record. Anymore. And was the record yeah. company a bit nervous about that? Because it's not the record; it's you kind of almost like obscuring the melody at that point because you got somebody speaking over it or something. Because that's, that's yeah, a they, common trait in a lot of your videos is having audio over the the music. Yeah, that was it. Was a it was discussed. Jeannie Mattiuzzi was a CBS rep for the video, and she understood immediately that this is a marketing tool. This is a commercial for the, this is not the record mm. and whatever's going to make people enjoy it is, is, is fine. So there was really no argument on this one. I've had other ones and I can't remember offhand, but that I've done where people say, Oh geez, we want to just want to hear the song. And it's like, and it's, and it's usually <laughs> from the art, the artist gets mad and says, 
I don't know, hear the song. I mean, another example of that is in Billy Don't Lose That Number by Phil Collins. During the guitar solo, we have dialogue over yes. Daryl Sturmer's guitar solo. Yes. And yes. saying, uh, who's, uh, who's that on the guitar? Daryl Sturmer. You gonna eat that sandwich? No, go ahead. Who's playing the guitar? Daryl Sturmer. Great. Great sandwich. And we thought Daryl might get mad or somebody might get mad, but Daryl actually loved it because it was the first time that people realized that he was playing guitar for right, Phil yeah. Collins, you know, so Got credit, to, yeah. to, to his advantage, but you have to, you kind of have to watch what you step on. A lot of times I would get, not a lot of times, but when I, when there was a lot of dialogue and we, we wanted to do something different, sometimes I would get just the music mix of the song and I could take the, the vocals down a little bit more so they don't so they didn't conflict and hit because that's that's kind of it's hard to hear either one so we would kind of remix it a little bit so the, the, the idea of making a video it's about the making of a video you've done it a few times another trope of yours i think is easy love is one of the first time you did that what made you have the idea in the first place was that the initial idea for the whole thing the, no the initial idea was a stupid idea it was the lookalike uh, the lookalike, but even before the lookalike, the initial idea that Philip Bailey and his record company came up with was that Phil, Philip Bailey would be in London driving around and it was almost like a Pied Piper thing. People were following him and they were all following him because this little magical munchkin Phil Collins was <laughs> like hitting his, his wand and all these great things were <laughs> happening and, and spreading love. And, you know, it was like it's like the worst idea you've ever heard. And we thought there's no way we're going to do this. And even even Paul Flattery, who did the stuff with Phil Bailey before that, I mean, he said, I can't do that video. I, I mean, you couldn't sleep at night if you did that video. <laughs> and so we basically called up. I call I called up Phil Collins and I said, here's the they want me to do this video possibly with you and Phil Bailey. And he was really pumped. He said, oh, great, because I'm worried. I was worried that Phil would bring in one of his guys and it would be, you know, and so. I told him the idea and it was silence. And Phil said, what do you want to do? And I said, anything but that. He goes, I'm in, you know, he said, whatever you have to do, just tell him unless you direct it. And unless it's not that idea, it's the idea you want to do. I'm not going to be involved. But, and but, he, would he, but would he have kept the costume from that one? If he'd have been the little munchkin with the, uh... I, don't, I don't know. It depends on what they were. <laughs> you, can keep, you can keep this costume. I don't want this one. But he, but he basically put his foot down and said he wouldn't be in it if he didn't like the idea and didn't, and, and if I wasn't directing it. Yeah, that's fair enough. Okay. So, so that, so then, kind of a compromise on that weird idea was okay. We get a look alike, and I don't know where that where that was going to go to, but they they really wanted to look alike. So we we did you know we had people send in submissions of pictures, and the one guy looked pretty much like Phil. I mean, I thought it wasn't. You know, he wasn't the perfect, but he's probably like an 80% Phil. And I really felt bad because we, he had told all his friends to watch the premiere of the video. Was... That's tough. That's really tough. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, it's bad enough for being a Phil Collins lookalike without like not getting the gig as well. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> that's double whammy, isn't it? 1985. Talking Phil Collins, 85 is really the year of Phil Collins. So you did the four videos. Four, was it four videos for the uh, for No Jacket Required? Right. But when you're doing a bunch of videos for one album, do you have 
outlines for all four and say this is this is this is the project we're going to be doing for this album or is it just literally one at a time i know that two of these were filmed like one more night in the studio is filmed at the same time wasn't it yeah the, the way the way but, that it happened was when i went in went into um tony smith's off, office in london because they wanted to they wanted to do the video for studio and one more night first but when i was in the office tony said we kind of i kind of pitched him and he kind of said let's shoot a documentary around the world with Phil. And I said, wow, that'd be great. You want to do that for this tour? And he goes, yeah, let's do it for this tour. Can you put it together? And so I obviously got Paul Flattery involved in hiring people in different like Europe and then Australia. But when he said that, I said, I would like to do take me home around the world. And he said, what do you mean? And I, I pitched him the idea for take me home being shot in every city in front of a famous landmark of every city. And he loved that idea. Tony Smith loved that idea. And he said, it's not going to be a single. And he said, but if the video is really good, we'll make it a single by the end. So with that in mind, we thought, okay, well, that's that project. Now we're also doing what's called an album tracks project, a show in America on Showtime called album tracks. That was going to show uh, a promote was going to studio one more night. It had, um, uh, I, I don't know if it had uh, it had three other songs. For, it had a long, long way to go. It had three other songs from the album that we shot at the Albert Hall. We we went into the Albert Hall and shot like the whole show for the first shows because that's where they started it. And we used three of the songs live from that portions of them for this special in America. It's only a half hour special, so we didn't use the whole songs. And we started with the uh, studio. We figured, okay, it's going to start in this club in Shepherd's Bush. And it's going to end in the same club when everybody's gone. So that was the concept for those two songs that they were going to be the bookends All for right. the whole yeah. for the whole show. And what was interesting about that whole scenario is, you know, and that, again, that was a typical thing where the band nobody likes a band, and all of a sudden everybody likes the band for studio. Okay, and people. And what was interesting about it was that between each take, you had to push people out again, make it empty, and then have them filter in <laughs> during the song each time. The Shepherd's Bush crowd, the, there was a, extras that we had in there, plus they, the owner had all his locals in there too. And the locals didn't like the idea of being pushed out of the club every like five minutes, right? So Paul Flattery pushed the wrong guy and the guy turned around and broke his nose. Oh my God. And they had to, we had to take Paul to the hospital that night. So, and, and in fact, Paul wasn't even there for one more night the next night because he had a big cast on. And you don't mess with an Englishman's <clears throat> pint ever, <laughs> ever. There's lesson learned there. I know, and there, and, yeah. and uh, there was an article in in the the time, not the Times, but the Sun or someplace, showing you know Phil's bop video, and it talks about how Paul got punched <laughs> in the face. But uh, that concept for those was just a, like we figured, okay, it's going to be performance, it's going to be something fun because it's an up up song in a club, and then the second and the one more night, we wanted that sepia old kind of style look with a lot of movement and and. Billy Don't Lose That Number was the fourth song. That idea didn't occur until we were in Australia on tour shooting. We shot, by the way, we shot a whole world tour documentary that never came out. Why not? It, because it was kind of a combination. There was a lot of things where it, all the good stuff was tough to film because they didn't want us to film the, the, the dramatic, you know, the, the stuff that was like really drama. Like when the horn section got in trouble for excess baggage or, or things like, I mean, there was a lot, those kind of things they didn't want us to shoot. So it was good, but it wasn't great. And they just never, they kind of lost interest in it, but we shot out. I've got like books of notes, hours 
of of footage that we shot and it should come out at some point because it was none of that ever come out at all pieces of it have if you look at some of the videos uh i did a video with him from one of the disney songs and it was a huge screen behind him and i edited together a lot of stuff from the documentary footage like him getting on a plane another reason why he wasn't crazy at the time he might be a little bit looser time now is that jill is in it after divorce jill yeah, she was, you know, so so it'd be weird to do a whole documentary with a wrong woman. <laughs> <laughs> so so anyhow, we were on tour in Australia and they all of a sudden said, OK, so studio one more night doing great, but we need a video for Billy Don't Lose That Number. And so I started listening to it. I remember listening to it by the pool on the top of the Siebel Townhouse, which is in Sydney and trying to figure out what are we going to do with this song? Because it's a weird another weird song. It's the kind of song that this is not going to be a hit without a good video. It's a good pop song, but it's not a hit song. And so we're thinking about thinking about it. And Paul Flattery said, remember about five or six months ago when you were telling me the idea you had for Bowie? I had an idea for Bowie to do, because I always wanted to do another Bowie video after Modern Love. And I thought, if you ever asked me to do a video, I got, I want to get a good video. So I had a video ready for Bowie, which is all these video directors come in and pitch ideas. And so Flattery said, why don't we use the Bowie idea? And I thought, yeah, Bowie's never going to do a video with me. So let's pitch that. And so we, we pitched that and they liked that idea. And we shot that mostly in Australia. The only part we shot of that video that's uh, anywhere else in Japan, we shot the samurai thing. But consequently, the, there's bits in it like the, um, in, in don't lose that number. I mean, let's do the commentary. Sure, sure if you want to. Yeah. Let me so, get it here. I, I always forget if it's don't lose my number, don't lose that. Just number. don't lose my number, isn't it? But I think everyone calls it Billy. Don't yeah, don't lose my. And then yeah. there's the, the Steely Dan song is Ricky, don't lose Ricky, my number. Yeah. That's what so that's. Six minutes, 17. Okay, okay. Three, two, one, play. Okay, so Phil, it starts out with Phil's talk in his record company office. Is, and is we this thought, in Australia okay, now, this bit. Oh, it's Australia. This oh, is down yeah. in yeah, Sydney. And which was, which presented its problems because of the Australian accents, everyone in terms of background acting and everything. And then, but we wanted to kind of take the piss out of the record company and the pitching and the ideas thing. And the first guy who walks in is actually Phil's keyboard player, Peter Robinson, who played this director. That's Peter. This based, is this based on anyone in particular? Do you have anyone? We like, we, we, we just liked, we liked how he looked and plus he had an English accent, you know, which was great. Like most as opposed to Australia. And he's, he's actually representing like Julian Temple. Okay, right. Okay. So, so because, so if you, you know, we thought it would be like a, and so we thought it's kind of, he's, he only spoke in one word ideas, like, you know, like uh, how the West was won, the Alamo, you know, and, and, and we thought it would be kind of funny. And then, and because this is the kind of thing that Phil would put up with daily people that are trying to act hip and cool, mm. right? And then the last person he says, he goes, Mel Craig's, and it's coming up pretty soon. Hang on. They're still talking. And Mel Craig's is Phil's road manager. And so it means nothing to anybody except it was an inside thing. Yeah, I always you know, wonder who the there. hell is Mel Craig's. Well, you're gonna see you're gonna see him because he's the first guy you see when you cut to the to uh, the western. Okay. They say they say Mel 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 Craig's, <laughs> and that, that's Mel right there with the hat on. Okay, brilliant. Okay. <laughs> okay. So okay, and then this the 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 brilliance of this video is that the DP was Dean Semler, who did Dances with Wolves 
and who did all the Road Warrior movies. Okay. okay? So, so he did, he, he was a cinematographer for all those. So if you look at the lighting and the look of this, it's phenomenal. You know, it, it was everything that he did looked like a movie to back then. I, I only wish my biggest regret in the, all these things is I look at this now and I wish, boy, if that was like 4k and the aspect ratio was right, you know, it would look really good. Now that that's Morris Lyda playing the guy that he's gunfighting. Um, Morris was his tour, tour manager. Not, uh, Mel was like the road manager, like his personal manager uh, assistant. And Morris is his tour manager. Morris is an interesting background. Morris was a tour manager for, uh, Paul McCartney for years and and did a lot of work over the years with uh, people like John Bellucci when he when they did the Blues Brothers and things. Okay, so then this director coming in was supposed to be like George like Miller, like the guy who did Road Warrior, mm-hmm. and we did Road Warrior basically because Dean Semler did Road Warrior. Nothing is moving except for that truck. <clears throat> Every other shot, nothing. Everything's just rocking. The truck is the only thing moving right. in this ho- and and because Dean knew how to do it because he shot Road Warrior, so. It looks like you got all these stuff chasing and moving, and it's and that's Mel Craig's, by the way, that was driving the vehicle again. He gets around, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. And now this is Godly and Cream, obviously, because it's the every breath you take ripoff. And and so we, you know, we we, we just kind of tried to get the the ones that were more recognizable of the day that we could kind of like take, you know, have fun with, and and not to make fun of their abilities because they're good videos. You know, every breath you take is great video. Okay, and then this is Bob Giraldi in the chair, who's a, a, a commercial director who did like the the Michael Jackson, um, I can't beat it, and so he, we thought, okay, we'll do a dance video with Bob Giraldi. So we got a guy to kind of look like Bob Giraldi, but you, in Australia, it's hard to find Bob Giraldi kind of <laughs> look like. Okay, and and so I'm trying to think what the next one is here. Hang on, it was always because yeah. that works perfectly with that bit of the song. It was always like that bit will go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now this this is the, the the guitar solo thing. This guy, we had nobody for this bit. He was the janitor of the of the of the studio, and we thought he looks perfect, and so he couldn't act really good at all. But but we would just give him like one or two words to say, and he would just say them. And and it was it was, and we only had one shirt, so this had to work really well the first time, and luckily it did. So we we really kind of rehearsed them. <laughs> to make sure that he could do it because there was only one shirt to fit this guy. He was so big. Uh, and then this is a, a Bondi beach, which is like a famous beach. And this is supposed to be kind of like the, the David Lee Roth video of California girls, which, and, and, and Elton John's I'm still standing, which yeah, Russell I still always think as a so, kid, it was, I'm still standing, but yeah. Yeah. But it's kind of like a combination of those, yeah. those two things. Right. Um, but, and now this was funny. It was actually kind of cold that day, but, and now this is interesting too, again, because this girl showed up at the last minute. We wanted like this Asian, you know, Japanese type director for the, this bit. She showed up and she couldn't speak English. And we thought, okay, what are we going to do? Well, her boyfriend spoke English. So we had him say stuff that we, we wrote for him as if she was saying, it, you know, and, and it actually turned out pretty well because it's like he's translating for her. The last one is uh, supposed to be... Um, What's uh, the guy who did the Cars video? Uh, what did I? What was his name? Jeff Stein, uh, who did the the, the car. Is that, so that's like a kind of a takeoff on the Cars video for this one. 
And I did that myself, the animation. I just, this was like way, way before like Photoshop and Premiere and all those things, Adobe stuff. I just drew a picture of the the bug with the wings in three different positions and the editor animated it to make a flip. And now this bit here, we go, so how does it end? On the original version that I turned in that that everybody kind of liked, but knew it would never work, was we shot so how does it end and him snap we shot that for six minutes so what do, what he, do you mean he's just so repeating so it over and over again for six minutes he's he, he we did well we did six i mean enough enough takes that it lasted six minutes so it'll be like take 39 take 41 and he goes so how does it end so he's like okay, 60 times cut cut so how does it end because <laughs> because i thought it would be like to me it was like an homage to the end of sergeant pepper album uh, the, just, uh, groove, yeah. the, gro- the groove that never ends you know yeah, yeah i yeah. thought we'll send it to mtv like this <laughs> and they're gonna let's let us let them figure out when to stop it you know and and then everybody got cold feet and they thought mtv won't like this they're gonna just get mad because you did that so we cut it off but it was to me it was you know it was kind of thing that i thought was would be really funny to pull on somebody did even you, as a joke you know so we sent the record company compromise into like <clears throat> seven or eight times and see if you could stretch it to like a bit more and <clears throat> Yeah, they, they cut it down to, I think, three, and that was yeah. it. Yeah. It's a brilliant video. I, I've always loved that video. I think it's just such a clever... How long did that take to film that? Because you've got quite a, different, quite a few different setups there. Well, it, it, it was like, like I said, it was all in Australia. The, the, the Western town was one night. Um, and in, in the Western town, going back to that for a second, the people riding the horses were Daryl Sturmer, the guitar player, Tony oh. Smith, the manager. And Leland Sklar, the bass player. Oh, really? I didn't have noticed that. I have to look out for that. I should have, I should have said that as, a, as a we were going by. So so on the horses, you had Tony Smith, Daryl Sturmer, and Leland Sklar. Yeah. And, and so then the the Road Warrior thing was the, one of the latter, later things shot in Australia. That was shot in Perth because we ran out of time. And everybody said, what was really weird is everybody said, shoot the Road Warrior thing in Perth because it's in the middle of nowhere and you could, you know, and so we get out to Perth and it's not in the middle of nowhere. Perth is like, like Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's like, where do you in Los Angeles is the middle of nowhere. Not until you go out way out of the desert and we couldn't get Phil and everybody to go hours out. So we ended up shooting it in a junkyard in the middle of town and Dean shot it. So you don't see any buildings, but it's literally a lot in the middle a town that's like a, a like a factory district junkyard and we burnt all these tires to give it like that smoke kind of effect tires i don't know if you ever seen tires burn but they really burn and they burn hot right. and they put a lot of smoke we would have got thrown in jail in america if we burned tires because the the ecology repercussions are ridiculous and so um it was great that we shot it there because we can get away with that and then from there we went to japan and we shot the samurai thing in japan but um it took you know probably like a week of shooting we didn't shoot every day we were on tour and dean semler who shot it was on tour with us doing a documentary as well so he did that whole japan australian wing and so it didn't cost any more money to keep the crew so we just shot it when we could and then in between all of that stuff we shot take me home so when we were in Australia, we went to the Sydney Opera House across from the city and had Phil sit in the rocks. And we got a, a water tank, like an aquarium. And I had Dean put the camera in the aquarium and have him come out of the water. And there's Phil sitting there with the Sydney Opera House because I knew that that would go with the Gotham's throwing a snowball on the screen and falling. And I have a sheet of paper, which I'll send you a copy of, which is when I was in Gotham, Sweden, 
I had to, I tipped, typed out the lyrics to take me home and I hand wrote next to every line where we shot it and what we were going to go, what's going to go to next. So I knew we'd shoot. Like, How accurate was that to the finished version? It was accurate because I would shoot, I would hit, pick a line and say, this line's going to be in this city. This line's going to be in that city. And then we'd always shoot one chorus in every city. So I could use bits from every chorus, uh, yeah. you know, and, and so we did the first shot in Gotham, which was a snowball one. And the sheet is incredible. I mean, I had carried it with me the whole tour, folded up into a little thing mm. and I'd open it up and it had, it had all my little notes on it, where it was going to be what. Cause you ended the, up. I was worried by the end of the tour, really worried because it take me home took like seven months to do or six months to do. I was worried somebody else was going to do the idea before right. it came out because it took so long to do it. We had to keep it really quiet. We couldn't tell anybody what we were doing because I knew like somebody would steal the idea and take a band around the world and shoot. And now Phil wanted to originally, he wanted it at the end, go to the Taj Mahal and shoot the last bit yeah. in front of the Taj Mahal and then crane out. And you see that it, that it's a green screen and he's really, like in the Alps or something, you know what I mean? It was like yeah, another yeah. twist that we ended yeah. up doing it. Uh, the opening and the closing at his house in um, down by um, uh, by the studio, by the farm down in South Southwest London. And he didn't want to show the front of the house because it was kind of ostentatious. So we just shot it on the side. But it was his actual house then. It was, it his, was house. his actual house. And as Jill, his wife, actually talking to him. Oh, is it? Like, really? So where, so where have you been? You know, and, yeah, and that was yeah. actually her. It was a fun video to do, but again, I was very worried someone was going to do it. Should we cue that up now and talk through it? Oh, if you want okay to. With that. Yeah, sure. Okay, it's another brilliant video. Another video I've always loved. So six, six minutes, 13. Three, two, one, play. Okay. So he says, she says, I think she said, uh, or I shouldn't say anything there, but this car, he loved these kind of cars. These little, I can't remember what model they are, but he loved that car. But that's that's his house. That's his driveway. But that's the side of his house. You, they didn't want to show the front of the house. It's in uh, Godalming or something like that. Godalming. 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 It's on, down in that area. Yeah. yeah. So what's interesting, if you watch this, we used to, it was funny is that he would come up here we would set up the shot. He'd jump out. <clears throat> the cue, the audio would be cued. We'd sing this song, do the chorus. People would walk by and nobody, by the time they knew it was Phil Collins, we were gone. All right. So we, we had it planned out. So all of these things, he would, he would stay out of sight. Like even that, this shot, he was in the car. We set up the shot or he, well, we'd actually call him when we had the shot set up. He'd pull up in the car, jump in, his, in on the bench. We'd shoot it and he'd leave. As soon as he shot the stuff we needed, which is the one line and then the chorus. Because he and will get swamped within a few minutes if people get swamped. Yeah. The other thing that's kind of interesting is if you watch how many times he loved this one shirt. If you watch this, there's, like <laughs> yes, a, yes. there's a shirt that he's got on all over the world. And we thought it was kind of funny. And uh, in this, he, the London stuff, the tour was over. And we wanted to shoot some stuff in London with Big Ben and everything else. And this is kind of sad because you see the Twin Towers behind, kind of. Yeah. Um, but we, we, um, there's that shirt that he loves. We, we, uh, <laughs> we taught, we wanted him to shoot the London thing. And he, yeah, I don't know. So we got him a helicopter from his place to come 
to, to meet us to shoot the one that's the first one the gothenburg one and then goes to australia and that's the one we did in australia with the sydney opera house <clears throat> um he didn't he didn't want to come but he, he finally so we hire a helicopter we got a car a driver everything and here he is in london and he didn't and and somebody said oh can we fix your hair and he goes oh i i didn't get a chance to wash it and paul flattery was like he could always take the piss out of people and be funny about it he said we pay all this fucking money to come over here jim and i fly to london we get you a helicopter and a limo and you can't wash your fucking hair you know and, and it wouldn't take him long anyway would it <laughs> no 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 it it was and phil would just laugh but it was it was kind of a funny thing but all the like yeah every this is um in germany we thought you know it's got that amsterdam kind of feel because of the windmills but it was in, um, I can't remember the name of the town in Germany. And then Elvis's Graceland, we, we had to talk to them and they said, we said, it's Phil Collins. I said, oh, great. So we didn't, you know, we didn't go up to the house. We just went like a little bit into the gate here and that was it. Oh, he didn't go inside um, then? You didn't have a No, visit? well, he did, have, he did a tour afterwards, a private oh, tour. Okay. But, and this is a Rupert Perry's house in Hollywood, who was the head of EMI at one point. This is, that's uh, Stockholm, Sweden. And it was very cold that day. This, Radio City, he, he again, we had the camera set up. He jumped up there and started singing. We set the camera up, you know, and we always had this kind of thing where people would come up to the camera. Like, if you notice this, people don't realize right here in Japan, and for a little while, they're starting to realize that's Phil Collins because everything was set up and he'd just jump in and jump out. Um, but in like places like this and that he would just jump on the bottom, the cable car would come on up and get off and that was it we would tell people we were shooting a documentary for German television because people would, they were thinking as you know, we're shooting a TV show or some big star and we didn't want them to know that. So yeah. we always said, Oh, we're shooting a documentary. And we go, we had a guy who had a kind of a German accent. He could fake it that we're shooting a bit for German television and nobody messed with us. They just, Oh, this is boring. And they'd leave before Phil got there, but he was playing at, at radio city that night. So that's what we did that. And then this, we stayed at this, we stayed overnight in a, um, uh, Rian or whatever they call it, those, those hotels in, in Kyoto for that shot. But it, that's, this is in Chicago on the beach in Chicago, Oak street beach. And then it was, it was actually a cool thing because like I said, he really liked doing it because it take him five minutes each day that we did this to do it. And he was gone. And so we would have to find out from him, you know, and we didn't really miss anything in any cities that he was on tour that were really worth. I mean, if, if we missed anything, it was that thing in Amsterdam, the little statue in the water or whatever it is that we wanted that, I think. And then he decided he didn't want to do it that day. And we did figure we got enough other stuff that we don't really need it. So it was one of my favorite. This, this was on a show. We had a time to right? You had to know exactly when Fuji, the Mount Fuji or whatever it was right there. It was, it was that, that Mount Fuji one way on a, on the tour bus or whatever that was planned in advance. You would, or was it just like, case? Oh, no, oh yeah. I mean, so that was planned. You already. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We knew, we knew we were going to go by Mount Fuji. So we just had to have the conductors tell us, okay, it's coming up in five minutes and it's going to be right over there. And so he had him sit there and it was great. And then this is, in a, uh, Beverly Hills in the back of a car. So, and it's really three DPs that shot this, the, the Jap, Jap Japanese and Australian stuff was Dean Semler. The American stuff was Doug Nickel. And this stuff here in, in England was, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Nick Nolan, who I don't know if you know that name, Nick Nolan, but he, he did a lot of videos 
over there as well. He's another Russell Mulcahy guy. And that's his wife, Jill, speaking. If you'll go to hear it when you turn it up there. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So when you look at that now, do you feel, I mean, it's such a brilliant video. It really is a brilliant video. It's such a, a brilliantly simple idea, like brilliantly executed. Do, when you look at that now, do you feel a kind of pride about that? Or is it just like, that's just what I did? Or I mean, how do you feel about it when you look at that now? I, I do have, I mean, I have a lot of pride for it. Like I said, I wish it looked better because it's because of the blowing up and the new HD and everything. It, 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 it kind of falls apart. Everything from that era fall apart because of the, you know, because of different standard back then. But if anything, I thought it was one of the better videos. I, I was surprised that it didn't achieve as much notoriety. Like Atlanta Confusion, everybody, oh, it was like number two MTV video yeah. of all time. Yeah. But to me, this one was as good my three favorite Genesis video. Well, there's more than that, obviously, but Phil Collins, take me home and Billy don't lose that number. Genesis, uh, no son of mine thought was one of my favorites of all time. And for fun, Jesus, he knows me was one of one of the fun videos. Take me home, three different DPs, six months to do. And I would have wished that the song was a kind of a bigger hit. It was a, a hit, but not a bigger hit. And that somebody who said, boy, that video, how did they do that? And nobody really responded to it. It's it's like, well, at least it worked. You know, it worked and I'm happy that I did it. And I, I think that that I look at it now and there's there's very little that I would have changed because it was so tough to pull off to, to get the timing right and get him there and get him out and get enough shots that we needed before people showed up that it was like probably one of the more fun projects to do and, and the patience of doing that over seven months as well of holding that footage and just yeah well we we would we would send stuff home and get the film you know developed because we didn't want anything to happen to the film along the way and make sure everything was so it was all back here ready to go when we were ready to go but it was yeah it was very scary jimmy's and jewels Okay, so these okay. are your favorites of the 80s. Favorite film of the 80s. Let me preface by saying that they're all, it's tough to say favorite because the things that I like are so different that it, there's, there's the comedy ones that I like, which were like things like King of Comedy. I don't know if you know yeah. that one. I love that one, yes. Um, yeah, King Scorsese. Of, uh, Scorsese. Nobody can remember his name. Mr. Pipkin. Mr. Pupnik. Mr. Puffer. Rupert. Pupkin, P-U-P-K-I-N. But by 11.30 tonight... The whole world will know that Rupert Pupkin is the new king of comedy. Broadway Danny Rose, which was Woody yeah. Allen, which was a, a, a great movie. He's a horrible, dishonest, immoral louse. <clears throat> and I say that with all due respect. And then on the serious side, uh, Goodfellas. Today, everything is different. There's no action. I have to wait around like everyone else. Can't even get decent food. Right after I got here, I ordered some spaghetti with marinara sauce, and I got egg noodles and ketchup. I'm an average nobody. Get to live the rest of my life like a schnook. And for a music movie that put me kind of in this business when I didn't even know that I'd be in this business was West Side Story, the original West Side Story, because that just knocked my socks off as a kid. I went and saw that in the theater and I thought, this is amazing. Not that I'm a song and dance guy, you know, it just looked fantastic seeing all those people dancing and singing up there. And it's kind of interesting that that movie affected me so much. And I ended up in the music video business. All right. Okay. Best TV series. I watch Seinfeld episodes every night still. And uh, The Office, both English Office and the American Office. And then things like Breaking Bad or 
the morning show. I don't know if you ever saw the morning yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, so that my, my wife and I like that one. Yeah, that's good. That's yeah, good. yeah. I mean, because that reminds me of my TV studio. It's it's very accurate in terms of being, you know, like a yeah. I mean, like what goes on behind the scenes and everything. You all are so convinced that you are the rightful owner of all of the power that it doesn't even occur to you that someone else could be in the driver's seat. And so, so we have to just gingerly step around your male egos in order to not burst this precious little bubble. Well, surprise! I'm bursting it. Did you recognize characters? Like, I know that person. I've worked yeah. with that person kind of oh, thing. Oh, yeah. All, yeah. All, yeah, because because after, after doing the videos, I did a show called Chelsea Lately with Chelsea Handler for seven years, and it was a talk show. And it's very similar to backstage stuff on that. And then I did a show called Entertainment Tonight, which is on here. And it's the same kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so it's it's fun to watch stuff when they're actually, they're not doing things that people expect, but they're actually doing the real stuff. Okay. Anything from the 80s, TV-wise, like during Ooh. the 80s that you'd watch? Or will you be I don't think I don't think I watched much TV in the 80s. You're too busy making videos, yeah? Yeah, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Favorite. Album? Did I put album or did I put song? Come on, I put on your list. Well, well, I think you put a f- favorite LP. Favorite LP. Yeah. Favorite LP. Well, definitely Face Value for, by Phil was one of my was one of my favorites. Um, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. Yes. By by Frankie Goes Hollywood. Trevor Horn is to me. If I saw him, I'd kneel down and kiss his feet. The guy's such a genius. And I don't know if you've interviewed. You had Lipson. Because yeah. maybe maybe you'll hear different, but but the stuff that he does, like "Slaves at a Rhythm" by Graves Jones, oh my gosh, I could listen to that a hundred times, and yeah. it's just amazing to me the stuff that he did. And then the ABC stuff. I mean, to think about a guy who's had who had the Frankie Goes to Hollywood album, he had the Look of Love by ABC, he had Grace Jones' "Slaves to the Rhythm," and he had Yes Nine Zero One Two Five, all at the same time. Yeah, I mean that's. Are yeah. you kidding me? Yeah. They're like they're they're like like the greatest producer in the 80s ever you know it was, it was it, and so that's one of my favorite albums there was an, an album called well I, this might be too early some of these other albums are kind of earlier so i don't know if they if they're effect but i mean howard jones stuff was always fantastic to me duran duran the production was always great kaja gugu the production was great hmm. you know i i was a huge 80s music fan I, I had the Frankie Says shirt and everything when I kept, I'd come over and I'd go to Top Shop on, on <laughs> um, you know, on Oxford Street and go to the, you know, HMV. Every time I came in and, and like load up with albums and 12-inch versions, because we couldn't get 12-inch versions back here very much. So I'd get CDs and 12-inch versions and all kinds of things. Why do you think British music was so huge in America in the 80s? Because in that first half of the 80s, it's insane how... Yep. They took production. Duran Duran. Yeah, yeah. They took. They took. They took. Well, before the MTV era, they, 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 they started. The first, the first thing I noticed, the first song I noticed was uh, was um, the Human League. Don't you want me? That was groundbreaking, in a sense that when I heard that, I thought something's going on here. This is like a whole. What made that sound different to American music at the time that you were listening? What was it that you about it? The the sequencing, the synthesizers' use. The they weren't just using synthesizers. As like how yes used to use them like on like 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 solo kind of things. They were actually sequencing things, and there was a, a heavy kick drum on every on every quarter beat, and a, a, a bass. You know, like they would they would take the bass guitar and they would thump it, and they would they would line it up with the kick drum for the whole song, and it was just this amazing sound that wasn't happening here. And 
eventually it started happening here, but it's even when it happened here, it was never like it happened there, you know, and you couldn't match that somehow here. I mean, everything here was a little bit slicker, you know, and then being there for all of it was, I was there for like in the middle of it. I went to the video for Too Shy for Kaja Gugu because I were for EMI. And so I went at that time to see that. I, I did a lot of stuff with Duran Duran. I'd be at Manchester Square working for EMI and Duran Duran would be in the studio that was in Manchester Square. There was a little rehearsal studio. They would be working on the new songs. And so I'd hear them right there. And, and it was just so cool to, to see what they were, they were doing with synthesizers and, and, and production. The reason Duran Duran and all that music got big here was MTV, obviously. The cable systems here in the early 80s didn't really exist in cities. They only existed in rural areas. And when Duran Duran and all these people were on MTV, their albums went through the roof in rural areas. And the record companies were saying, why is it that Duran Duran is so popular in Des Moines, Iowa? <laughs> and they're not, and they're not popular in Chicago, Illinois. Mm. And then they start realizing it's because MTV is in Des Moines, Iowa, because it's on cable. And so immediately the record companies realized the power of MTV and it changed the whole business. And a lot of people are bitter about MTV, but I mean, I loved it. I loved the whole era. I thought it was, I wish it was still there in a sense, because I'd like to yeah, be able to turn stuff on and watch it. Yeah. And, and like, like some of my favorite, favorite videos from back then were, you know, like, Girls on film was a brilliant. Golly cream, speaking of golly cream, uh, two tribes. Yeah. Oh my gosh, what a great video! Uh, Wild Boys that, that Russell Mulcahy did for Duran Duran was a great one. Uh, oh Father, I don't know if you remember that one. Madonna film, David Fincher, yeah, David Fincher, yeah, that was yeah. a great one. Obviously, yeah. Sledge Sledgehammer was was a great video. You know, I mean, that those are those to me were like just brilliant videos, and and the, the music in England always was was a step ahead of America I always thought I mean I obviously we they say oh well the R&B and everything influenced the Beatles and everything but you know if you look back at the, the Beatles everything that came out of England I was a huge English music fan English when I see concerts that were filmed by English directors I could tell because it was way better than American directors they knew where to be with the shots. They knew when the guitar player was playing a solo, not the sax player. They knew when to go wide to show the crowd reaction. You know, so, it's it just a different mentality because there were so many British yeah. music video directors in the eighties. Like the majority seemed to be British. Yeah. I, I like Mallet and those, and those people, they, they just knew how to shoot music. And, and that's kind of like what I did a lot of live stuff. I mean, I, I loved, I grew up on watching them do their thing because I hated like when the Beatles were on American television, they would show the wrong guy doing the wrong bit. And that always bugged me as a kid. Yeah. And then when I got a ch when I worked for EMI and I saw the stuff that like that Mallet and these guys were doing, I thought, this is how it should be done. This is great. Consequently, the guy who ran our department, who came over to run the, the video department when I was at Capitol, was English. And he appreciated the fact that I really knew the English stuff. And that that was that to me was the best stuff that that there was. Did you ever pitch to like Giant Duran or one of these English bands? Do you ever get close to directing videos for them? I no, I I actually the Barrel Brothers, the managers. I had a meeting with them once about some show. The I think it was the live show that was it ended up being Arena that Russell shot, and I knew I wasn't going to get it, but I think that they just had a formality. They had to meet with a bunch of people to to let their record company, you know, think that they were meeting with people to do it. But what Russell did with Arena was incredible. What's well, the secret to directing a good um, live video? Is that, I mean, what is, what is the key to it? It's, to me, it's, 
know who the audience is for the band. Like when I did Genesis stuff, their audience is generally people before they were to pop Genesis. I mean, it's kind of changed a little bit, but even, even when they're to pop their audience, half or more enjoy the musicianship. So with Genesis, you show them playing the tough bits. You show Tony playing the tough bits. You show the, the massiveness of the crowd. You don't show uh, what the same as you would in a Sean Mendes concert, which I did like a year ago, where you have the girls crying in the audience and everything. You, you know, you, you, you kind of filter the look for who is going to be watching this show. And I think, so you have to kind of know that. Is it a musicianship show? Is it an event? Is it, is it the kind of thing that you want to, like somebody at the Hollywood Bowl, you want to make sure people know we're at the Hollywood Bowl. It's kind of different each time, but generally if I had to lean one way, it would be shoot the right person at the right time, you know, because that is the most unsettling thing is to be watching and hearing something and not seeing it. So would you, I, I take it you'd watch the gig first and then you'd, you'd note, okay, so that's the guitar solo there. I need to be there for that. And you'd, you'd yeah. make a shot list based on the song. Like, would you break it down that much? Or would it just be a case of, you've got these number of cameras filming it, you know, I, when I edit it, I'm going to cut to that. I'm going to cut to that. I'm going to cut to that. Yeah. Well, you, well, if you have a lot of cameras, like David Mallet always had, somehow they, you'd always have like 30 cameras. So you can't miss much with that. Yeah. When you have shoots where you only have like eight or 10 cameras and you got like a lot of people on stage, then, you have to kind of break it down a lot more to know with Genesis. I always broke it down to know who, you know, is doing what, at what bit. And I kind of knew anyway, but I would make sure that I had different things covered. And then a lot of times you would also, if they would allow it, you would, for a live concert video, you would try to go in on an off day or in, if it's indoors in the afternoon and shoot close-ups. Yeah. So you wouldn't put cameras in the way to audience. But now with the small GoPros and things that are good, you don't need those shots anymore. You can get them live and just put a ton of them around. And also with the cost now, not being film, but being on video, you can use a lot of cameras. It used to be the film cameras were expensive and, and film was expensive. And if you had like 16 film cameras burning film and you're changing roles like every five minutes or every 10 minutes, depending on the size of the reel. It's, it was a lot of work. You had to have runners to run. You had like a whole, with film, you had a loaders in the back room that were constantly changing film and rolling, making reels that, that would be runners would take out to the camera position. You'd have to coordinate when cameras would go down to change film so that not everybody went down at the same time. So you'd be watching video taps and who's low on film. You'd have, we had a system set up eventually with, with stopwatches so that you knew this guy's got three minutes left. This guy's got 30 seconds left. We got to get him changed. But if he, he can't change until this guy's finished or we're not going to have that shot, you know, so it was a lot, it was really tough back then. So if you, did you ever miss any key moments then after re reshoot another day or um, no, no if you know if you did you'd shoot it the next day like genesis the mama tour we shot that a three-night period we in birmingham um it was the princess trust so lady die and charles were there actually which was kind of interesting i bet bet charles loved that didn't he yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) but but that was interesting because we shot three nights and daniel pearl was a dp and we we everything was going real well the first night and because i figured okay here's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna shoot all this put I had, I think, I don't think I only had like eight or nine cameras. So I set them up and I figured I'll move all the wide shots, but you got to keep somebody on fill from every night because he might sing it a little bit different. So you don't want the sync to go off. So the close-ups of the vocals, you have to generally shoot each night the same thing. So you sit two cameras on fill 
every night, one from the pit, one from here, one from, one from the audience, one from long shot. You'd keep two on him every night. The other ones you could move around to get different spots. You can move the jib from this side to that side. But then in the middle, at the encore of the first show, someone threw a, a wool cap up on stage and Phil put it on. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. He was pissed because as soon as he put it on, he said to himself, bloody hell, I've got to wear this for the next two nights in a row. <laughs> so on the so second the next... night, he just suddenly put some woolly hat on. People were thinking, what the hell is he doing? Yes. So the second night, we had like somebody from the road crew in the pit toss it up oh, to right, him okay, and he, right. <laughs> so he had to put it on at the same time in the medley it was uh -huh. that medley they did for the encore every night at the same time <laughs> that's hilarious so would you have to direct the band in the sense of like you cannot be in this position this song because you did this the first night you have to <clears throat> you never do that and the way you get around that is you go you can't go wide if you're going wide and you see where he's at you got to go tight to him tight to a drummer at least at least at least two tight shots then you can get back to wherever you are Right. Even if Sandy even Sandy it can imply that he's moved in the meantime, even if he has. Yeah. Right. Okay, that's clever. Yeah. If you, if you get two close-ups in a row, you can get around anything. Right. So the close-ups, I would have assumed. Do you like shoot, shoot them like during a sound check or something, or do you actually just have them come out, especially just to do close-ups? Yeah, and they, a lot of times he couldn't afford to do the whole show, so you just do bits, and that would help a little bit. Um, most of the time, the people that weren't the real band like Chester and Daryl would get stuck doing the whole show because oh, the, the, the other three didn't really want to do the whole thing. Yeah. So, but, but so, which is okay. Cause it'd be great. It's great to have Daryl for the whole show. It's great to have Chester on drums with two or three cameras for the whole show. Cause you could always cut to that. Yeah. And it gives you like a, you know, a little breathing room. Okay. That's really interesting. Best live event you attended in the eighties. Best. Okay. I wrote these down too. So I wouldn't remember. Let's see best. Well, the best live event was, um, and I think I think it was in the 80s, was Jeff Picaro tribute. And I don't know if you know who Jeff Picaro is. Totally. Drummer. I had a friend that was a friend of his brother's, so they got me a ticket to go. And I went with Paul Flattery. The two of us went. And it was filmed, but never came out, I don't think. It was recorded, and I think now it's out. But it, you couldn't buy tickets anywhere. You, somebody had to give you a ticket. It was at the Universal Amphitheater in L.A. And it was probably one of the greatest shows I ever went to. It was all people that he played on their albums. So you had you had a list like Michael McDonald, Boz Skaggs, Steely Dan, Toto, Don Henley from the Eagles, George Harrison. You know, I mean, it was it was like a you know like a brilliant show, and they all did their hits. And so that that was good. And the other another one in the that I went to the eighties was the, the in the same room was the Who doing the Tommy thing with Phil singing Uncle Ernie's bit. Somehow, Paul and I went and, again, and we got stuck behind a camera, which is poetic justice. <laughs> and so, so the cameraman who we knew told the promoter or the producers, hey, these two guys are friends of mine. They got stuck behind me. So they put us and we were in a second role. We ended up being in a second role. So we were in a second role for this concert. It was fantastic with, you know, like 
I don't know if I think I can't remember if Tina was in it or Elton John. It was it was an amazing show. I love Tommy. I'd love to have seen that. Uh, the, the brilliance was, was we were sitting right in front of Entwistle. He was an incredible player, as you probably know. And he would be he'd play something so fast, and I'd look at him and just like he'd see the look on my face and he'd go like <laughs> because he's like he's like going right at me and he's like how'd you like that you know <laughs> like a teenage girl excited and, and it was and, and it was also funny because next to us behind us were all the hollywood celebrities people that were like i don't know if you know who michael landon is from bonanza and from little house on the prairie and everything people like that that were like you know tv show people and to see them all sweating with their shirts off going crazy with the who was pretty <laughs> pretty cool <laughs> that's amazing i think the last question was um which music video you wish you had directed in the 80s oh well yeah it would it, it would probably be two tribes i think because that's my kind of my style storyline funny comedy and it was almost it was one of the few videos that was literal but you didn't feel like it was literal yes do you know what i mean you, you'd always get like these treatments where somebody say uh, she walked in the room and you did it okay we got to cut to a shot of her walking in the room and it's like Come on, that's so bad. You can't do that. You gotta. And, have you, have you done video. that? What's the most literal video you directed? Yeah, I'm trying to think. It was probably one of the early ones. I did a, a video for America, and it was, you know, it was the kind of thing where, you know, the, the, the two guys come around a corner and here they came around a corner, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was, but that video, Two Tribes, oh my gosh. When I saw that, I thought, this is. This is so much fun. I could watch that like all the time because Holly was great in it. And and um, they used the same guy as we used in um, Atlantic Confusion, the Reagan sound alike, which Paul, I think his name is Paul something. Paul, he's an English voiceover guy. I can't remember what his name was. Oh, Chris Barry. It's enough to make you wonder sometimes if you're on the right planet. Chris Barry. Yes. Chris Barry, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And who came into the studio when we did the video he came in and do this stuff in the studio and it was fun to, in, to interact with him because he was you know he's my hero from the frankie was the hollywood records i mean <laughs> orgasm has become the most mystified state of feeling um no one can be quite sure if they had it or not um, is it just ejaculation or is it orgasm is it just involuntary pelvic contractions or is one having orgasm So is there anything you'd have done differently with Two Tribes if, if you'd have had that gig? I don't think so. I mean, it's I felt it was something I would have done because it had the video combined with the film and it, the storyline. It was, for the technology of that day, it was great. I mean, if you did it today, you'd, you'd do some steady cams going around and, and, you know, like different, like maybe a drone flying over the audience. But you couldn't have got any better for the day, I don't think. And I think a video today would capture the energy of that video as well. It's, it's, yeah. You know what I mean? Technology doesn't always benefit. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. This is the end of part one of the interview. Thank you. So when we did the audio commentaries, or he did the audio commentaries, I was just sat there grinning like a kid, thinking this is exactly what I wanted it to be. You know when you have an idea, then when it's realised, it's like, hmm... Yeah, it wasn't quite what I thought it would be. This kind of everything I wanted it to be. And thanks to, to, to Jim for that. Then and episode two, there's a lot of great stuff there. So listen out for the second part of the interview. There are some great pictures of Jim that he sent me of him making the videos of Genesis that I'll include somewhere. I'll use with this episode or part two, as well as the sheet 
the mansions for Take Me Home that he kept in his pocket for seven months. It's just fascinating seeing it annotated with where each bit was going to be. And I'll probably put them on, probably put them on Twitter, I think. Don't know why I bother with Twitter, to be honest. I don't get social media. I just, we are not natural bedfellows, let's say. Uh, this is great stuff, so it's definitely worth, worth looking at. So Jim is on Facebook, and you can also see his crazy resume at the website for NLive and Productions. That's E-N-L-I-V-E-N. And check uh, out nliven.tv forward slash Jim Yukich to see what a busy guy he's been for the last 40 years. And until next time, whether you are William or not, don't lose my number. They came at night, leaving fear behind. Shadows are on the ground. Nobody knew where to find him. No evidence was found. So how does it end? 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 So how does it end?
Svarzident. 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 Like this again.